Let's kneel together, if you can, please. Father, we're so thrilled that when we leave this earth as men and women and young people in Christ, we will graduate and be with you in eternity. And Lord, as we see the signs of the time today, we understand the Lord's prayer. We prayed so many times, thy kingdom come. Lord, speak to us clearly in this time of biblical study. Let me get out of the way. I've got nothing to say. For we make this prayer confidently that it got all the way to you because we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. California this past week, a family had a barbecue in their backyard and invited all their neighbors to come, children, dogs. The man who was barbecuing looked over in a bush and saw a, a rattlesnake coiled. Maybe you read about it. And he wanted to get the rattlesnake out of the way, and so he took the, the tongs he was barbecuing with, and he went and grabbed the rattlesnake, trying to take him away, and the snake struck him in the arm. They called 911, and also they called the Catch and Release Protection Agency for the environment and for animals that existed in that city, and they came. The ambulance arrived to take him away, the same time that the environmentalists came to catch and release the snake in another habitat. Interestingly, a bigger crowd was around the capture of the snake than was watching the man who had been struck by the snake put in the ambulance. We're always attracted to snakes more than we are to the victim. Have you noticed that? The bottom line is, everybody here has been snake bitten, every single one of us, no exceptions. You say, what, what is that all about? It started in the Garden of Eden. The snake, evil came, asked Eve a question or two. She decided to eat the fruit, so as the evil snake had told her, she would be like God. She was bitten by the snake. Adam was bitten by the snake. We call that, in theological terms, the fall of man. It is the fall. And in the process, the poisonous venom went in the bloodstream of the first man and the first woman, and guess what? That venom has been carried down 
all through the ages until all of us were born with snake venom within us that will kill us. What was God's answer? The cross. The cross. Because God came into this world and we read he died for our sins. He died for that venom that is flowing in your veins and in my veins. And by the way, do you know what anti-venom is? What does it consist of? Anti-venom is blood mixed with venom from snakes. And they took this man to the hospital, and I assure you, they took some anti-venom and put it in his bloodstream so he would be, how about this word, saved. And so Jesus Christ, in a supernatural transaction that no one completely understands, God put on him all the snake bites that you and I have ever had, and therefore his perfect blood that was shed becomes an anti-venom that when we receive him as Lord and Savior, that anti-venom works in you and in me, and that's the background of the word salvation. Now, if someone would doubt that we're born bitten by the snake, this is a brief theological, biblical background, but I can prove it to you experimentally. I can prove it to you by how we live. For example, did anybody have to teach anybody here how to lie? You know, how to deceive? How to lust? How to be prideful? How to have those humble brags that we do? Well, I've done all this, but oh, it's of God. You know, we were so skilled, but humble brags, are we not? Who, who, who taught us to defend ourselves? Who taught us to get involved in all. How did we learn that? We are born bitten by the snake. And the anti-venom that comes in us from the blood of Jesus Christ, that is what saves us. I like the word salvaged us, as you know, restores us to the purpose for which we were made. So, we come to this side of the cross and God begins to work a miracle in our lives. And then we grow up in our faith. We call that sanctification. We call that maturity. We call that all of a sudden helping God to build his mind, his heart in his way in you and me. And we have what we call character. Character is not something we have. It's something we become. Oh, he has character. Have you and I become with genuine character that God That's the process of growing and maturity. So we come to this moment in our study of Corinth, and we see as we've studied chapter 1, 2, 3, 4 of Corinth. Some of you have been around. You remember where we are. The church in Corinth that Paul established is becoming more like the culture of Corinth than the culture of Corinth is being penetrated by the church. 
because they came to faith in Jesus Christ. They came to the cross, and they realized they were bitten by the snake, and they received Christ, but now the church in Corinth is in a mess. I mean, you want to see a church that's totally mixed up, confused, and immoral, and, and there's all kind of conflicts going on, all kinds of immorality. And Paul now, in the first four chapters, he has said something as you read the rest of 1 Corinthians that's a little bit surprising. He says, all of you are Christians. Oh, these are Christians? We're just beginning to get into some serious stuff here, folks. They're Christians. And in chapter 1, he says, you are in Christ. By the way, you want to find the theme of the life of Apostle Paul, that's it, two words, being in Christ. That's the theme of all his writings. We are to be in Christ. He said you're in Christ in the last part of that first chapter. He says you are redeemed. We've been bought back. We're in the family. We don't deserve to be. That bloodshed redeemed us, paid the price for your sin and my sin, and that anti-venom begins to work. We're redeemed. Then he says, we're holy. Man, I don't think about being holy. Can you believe that we are holy in God's sight? We are set aside because the next word he says, we're righteous. I don't feel very righteous. Do you feel righteous? Well, sometimes a little bit, but he says, it is the righteousness of Christ that has been put inside you and me. So we're in Christ, and this is who we are. So Paul establishes us doctrinally. Well, I don't like doctrine. Listen, doctrine is what we believe, what we really believe. And what we really believe should determine the life that we live. In fact, the life that we live also speaks back to say, that's what you and I really believe. All the rest is words. And Paul has already said the kingdom of God is not words, it is power. It is power. So now he's put the foundation down, and there's plenty of debate in the church. There are fractions in the church, theological discussions in the church. And he says, you know, this is not who the church is. We're all one in Christ. We are a new creation. We're a new race. We're all one in Christ. There's no discrepancies, no someone's better or worse than anybody else. We're all in Christ. And as he put this foundation sound down, it says, you Corinthians are Christians. And then in chapter 5, he introduces us to a whole section that goes on and on and on, and he talks about sexual immorality. Oh. Standing here so many years, when I talk about death, everybody gets quiet. When I talk about sex, everybody gets super quiet. But here he introduces in chapter 5, these are Christians now. These are part of the church. He introduces immorality, and I want you to open your Bibles with me. It's good to bring them to church. 
Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter number 5, and let's read, listen together these first verses. He says, it is actually reported hmm, that there is sexual immorality among you Christians of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. Well, this must really be something. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you're proud Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning, incest? And he says, for a man to sleep with their stepmother, even the Roman law would forbid that, let alone the principle of Christ. <laughs> the Roman law said, this is outside the realm. Now, remember where they lived. They lived in Corinth, and the church was an island of people who had received Christ and they were living around perhaps one of the most sensual societies that this world has ever known. Las Vegas, Sin City. What happens in Las Vegas stays in Las Vegas. I know you've never heard that. That's exactly what they would say in biblical days. The Corinthians, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. It's Sin City. And a lot of these Christians had been living decadent lives of total immorality. There was, there was a freedom of sex and sexual expression. Man, it was widespread in Corinth, and it, they even had a temple to Aphrodite in which sex was worshipped. It's the highest form of pleasure, and so they worship sex. So many of these Christians had come out of that environment, and they'd come into the church, but now this one person, Paul is talking about. Evidently, he was a prominent member of the church. And evidently, everybody knew about it in the church, and all those outside the church knew about it. Perhaps he was a deacon or teacher, pastor. We don't know what his role was, but he was very prominent, very important. And he says, the church was proud, crazy, of this incestuous life he was living. I guess the church would say to all those immoral Christians, our church is so progressive and we're so tolerant and we're so up to speed in the first century. We've got, you know who it is, in our church living an incestuous life and he's still teaching, he's still functioning, and we just sort of turn away from it. And we're, we're kind of, you'd fit in our church too. You don't have to change your lifestyle very much. We, we sort of accept all of this. We, we don't question all of this. And they were proud of it. Hmm. And then Paul says, but shouldn't you be mourning? And the word mourning there means there has been a death. And it, it's mourning deeply. Someone has been taken away. And Paul is saying, instead of being proud of this person, they, we have this. You see, it was the kind of person that they would say, guess who's member of our church? the mayor, the governor, whoever. Oh, man, we're so proud to have them. 
And now they said, instead of being proud, you should be mourning over the incest that this man, common knowledge, is participating in. A Christian. And then Paul says, this is what you do about it. This is strong medicine, folks. He says, put out of your fellowship the man who's been doing this. For in my part, says Paul, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of Jesus. You mean Paul is judging this person? Let me say for about the 20th time in the last couple of years, this little thing, don't judge me, judge not, you'll be not judged. We are not to judge because you and I are not qualified to judge because we do not know all that's involved. But what God has already spoken about in judgment, thou shalt not kill. Well, here's a murderer, but we're not going to judge him. No, when God has already spoken about biblical truths, what is right and what is wrong, it is not judgment to say this is wrong. You don't act like that. You don't speak like that. You don't operate like that. You don't live what God has already judged. Paul is saying God has already said in Jesus Christ that incest is a deadly, deadly moral sin. Jesus pronounced that judgment. Paul did not have to do it. And then look at what he says. He says, what do you do? He says, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, the latter part, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Now, keep that in your mind. This very prominent person in the church, in the city, is going to be called before the Christians in his immoral lifestyle. And look at the purpose of it. See the purpose? so that he might be salvaged, so that he might be saved. And says, what do you do with him? You turn him over, you turn his flesh over to Satan. Huh. Some people say that means that Ananias of fire, he's going to die and have physical problems. It may be physical problems, but if something even deadlier than that. You know what that means? Turn his flesh over to Satan. It means that that passion, that sexual drive that led him away from his wife and his children with infidelity and with all the things, that infidelity that led him in this lifestyle, that lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the pride of the life, the world, the flesh, the devil, whatever it was, he says, they're going to lose that sexual desire. It's going to be taken away. In other words, you have an addiction. Oh, I just smoke two or three cigarettes a day, and I'm smoking a pack a day or two packs a day. Then I'd go, sure. Oh, I'm just going to try a little alcohol, and I drink more and more and more. How does it work? Oh, I'm going to experiment here with, with this drug, and I'm going to control. You see, with all the addiction that we have, And once we have the addiction, 
and we let it go, and we have this, and we let it go. We have this, and we let it go, and it has this, and we, we, we let it go, and then it has us. That's the story of every addiction you can name. So this is what happened. And so he says, just let him follow. Let the results of this addiction take its course. And every kind of immoral addiction takes its course, does it not? Study the life of any individual you can find. It catches up with you. Public knowledge. Bill Gates, now in a divorce. He and his wife are going to have to split $148 billion. Well, all we know for sure is that, well, once a year that Bill did take a vacation with a girl he was engaged to before he got married. I don't think that affected divorce. Anybody think that had anything to do with their problem? I mean, how, how? You see what happens? You see what happens? So if you have this tendency, just turn that flesh over. And then he says, What are we to do? We are to judge as a church this person who was living in well-known incest. How do we deal with that? How do you deal with somebody you know is going down a dead-end street and you can see without being too smart they're about to fall off a cliff? How do we deal with that? Matthew 18. And by the way, This has been done in this church many, many, many times. If there's a moral problem, we should pray and fast and go and sit down with that person and don't tell anybody else, well, I'm going to talk with Bill because he's caught up in an adulterous relationship. I want you to pray for me. No, no, no. I see a lot of prayer meetings are more ungodly than those who don't even pray. If how you handle Matthew 18, you go one-on-one and with tears and with prayer and with your own understanding that you're not going as somebody who's perfect and you deal with that in love and in pairs and try to help them come out of the immoral trap. If that doesn't work, Jesus says, then you take two or three others and they go with you and they sit down with this person and they try to deal with them. You see, you don't take something and expand it. And then if that doesn't work, you take them before the body of Christ, the church. Evidently, this is what had happened with this man. The church was so prideful and he was so prideful saying, well, this is not a big deal or whatever. And now they go before the church and the church pronounces judgment. I have never got to that point in my personal relationship in dealing and using Matthew 18. I've never got to that point. And we say they've been churched. It doesn't mean they cannot attend worship. Certainly, and evidently this man we'll see evidently continued to go to church. He just did not have a prominent position. So, then we see what was the problem here. The problem was the man didn't kill the snake. He didn't kill the snake. 
Look at verse 5. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens a whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast in the Old Testament. Yeast, leaven, is always connected with sin. You see it, yeast, yeast, yeast. We know in the Passover, what happened? The Passover lamb was killed. The blood was shed and put on the door, and therefore the death angel would pass over that because the blood was shed. And we see here it says in a later verse, Jesus is the Passover. Jesus died on the cross, and his shed blood comes as an anti-venom and begins the process of cleaning up that venom that's in every one of us. That's the first step of salvation. And he says you have to kill the snake. These California loonies were going to let him out and put him out and take him into another environment. Let me tell you something, ladies and gentlemen. That's not how we handle rattlesnakes in Texas. You can write that down. <laughs> yeast. In the Passover, they took any yeast, any leaven out of the house before they went to the Passover feast. Why? Because you put a little yeast in a whole hunk of dough. I don't know much about it, but I understand that that yeast just goes through all that dough and it rises and gets larger and larger. You think, well, your sin or my sin doesn't affect the church? Sure it does. Immorality affects all the church, all the body of Christ. Everybody. It's like yeast. It goes everywhere. He says, kill the snake. Get the yeast out. And then the next thing he says, you can't be tolerant. He's already introduced that in the very first verse of this chapter. He says, I wanted to, I wrote you a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now, he explains that. Let me tell you briefly. He says, it's not that we don't associate with immoral people in the world. You couldn't live if we didn't do that. Now, you don't just become intimate friends with them and do a lot of business with them. I think that's deadly every single time it happens. But see, God is going to judge the world. Folks, don't get in the business of being judging. We're not to judge the world. God's going to take care of that. Those who are outside the family of God, those who've never been this side of the cross, God's going to handle that. But we are in the church, Matthew 18, to go and try to call those back who are running over the cliff. God did not put these thou shalt not down to keep us from having a good time or fulfilling everything in life. He put those thou shalt not downs as a protection for us to have a full and glorious life. Now, what has happened to so many people is that in our sensual culture, our sensual culture, we have a tremendous problem in the whole area of sex. C.S. Lewis says, what if you took a table of food and you had delicious food on the table? Man, you had all kinds of things. Man, wonderful things. You had wonderful desserts. And you covered it with a cloth. And people would come and fill a room or fill a large place. And all that would happen is you would take that cough and 
pick it up and you'd see a little bit of the food and they'd say, ooh, you'd put it down. Oh, ooh, there's strawberry shortcake. Ooh. Man, man, there's some, oh, that's my favorite. Oh, that, that's, and you put it down. What if you, see, as Lewis said, and, and you would take food and cover it and all you did was uncover a little bit here and a little bit there and people kept coming back, coming back, coming back and seeing, oh, look at that. Oh, oh, oh. He said, what would you think about those who would do that? You'd think they have a problem with food, wouldn't you? Is that too spot fire? You, you have a food problem. We're either getting too much food or the people are starving. It's food. This is where we are in our sexual world today. Last year, 33.6 billion people. There's only a, about 120 million in America. 33.33.6 billion people visited free porn sites last year. One of the biggest business in the world now is pornography. We've all been exposed to it. When children are exposed to it, it is so very deadly because there is that prefrontal cortex right in the middle here. Cortex covers that part of our brain, that lobe in our brain. And when children see pornography, that part of their brain is not developed. What does that brain do? That brain helps us make decisions, helps us to relate to people, help us to run our lives properly. And when children are exposed to that, it is stunted, it is dwarfed, it is confused. And when adults are repeatedly exposed to this, the pornographers say, we're getting more and more vivid. The reason they're doing that is because there's a jadedness and they have to continually become more and more perverted. I looked at this and I thought, maybe this explains. I'm not speaking ex cathedra here or being overly dogmatic. I'm speculating and it's my speculation. Maybe this explains how a lot of people in Positions of power in the corporate world, in our political world, in our educational world, seem to many of us to be absolutely stupid as they're doing everything they can to destroy America. Maybe that prefrontal cortex has been so damaged they can't discern darkness from light and right from wrong. I've almost come to that conclusion. That's my speculation. Because I can't understand how so many people are doing so many things to destroy the United States of America. I cannot even comprehend that. It is wild and hard to believe and to see right before our very eyes. Maybe in all the sensuality that we've been a part of for so many generations now, we're seeing the deadly payoff at this moment in history. I pray that that is not right. But I think that's something to think about. So here we are. 
What do we do from here? The end of this chapter is so strong. He says, what business is it of mine to judge those who are outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside the church? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Think about this Corinthian man, so prominent, so well-known, proud of in the church, known outside the church, living in Sester's life. Look what he went through in all the humiliation and shame before that body of Christ. But Paul says he was a Christian. How can this be? You see what happened? He came to Christ. He understood the shed blood of the Christ. Paul has already talked about the cross. And knew the blood of Christ was cleansing him of sin. But what happened? We've already talked about in Corinthians. There's a natural person who's outside of the Christ. There's a spiritual person who is in Christ. And there is the carnal person, fleshly person. So what happens? This man ends up on the back side of the cross. Now he is a Christian, but he's lost the protection of the church. He's lost the authority that Christ gives his sons and daughters. And now he is living a carnal, fleshly life just like he lived before he ever came to Christ and became a part of the body of Christ. He's gone back there, and now his back is to the cross, and he is carnal. He is carnal. He is sensual. He is living an immoral sexual life. Before you get too pious out there, Everybody here in different times and different states, we too have been on the wrong side of the cross. Don't misunderstand me. We've been over here. Different reasons, different things. We've been over here. For the flesh controls us. What could this man do? He tolerated the snake. He let it out. And by the way, in California, interesting. Those who came and took that snake, had the right kind of material, and put him in a container to go release him somewhere else, California style. When they released him up the road, the head person of the environmental agency that protects wildlife saw that big snake come out and begin to crawl right back toward that same area where they captured him, and he went out and killed the snake. He had to go back and answer to the authorities as to why he did such a thing. What do we do here? The snake. The same thing he did when he came to Christ. He goes back on the right side of the cross. <laughs> and he goes and he, this is what we do when we're caught up in the flesh. We go right back to the right side and confess sin and turn from sin and ask that blood of Jesus Christ 
to come into our life and to be that anti-venom that sets us back on our feet and sets us free. That's what we have to do. Let me show you. This is one of the most thrilling verses in all the Bible. You say, well, I wonder what happened to this guy in Corinth. I mean, did he do that? Receive Christ? Wrong side of the cross? Did he go back on the right side of the cross? All that he'd been through? Listen to what happens in 2 Corinthians. Same guy. If anyone has caused grief, this man did, he has not so much grieved me, said Paul, as he has grieved all of you to some extent. Not to put it severely, the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to affirm your love for him. This man was completely restored in the fellowship of the body of Christ, and that is the miracle of his grace. Now, One question. Does anybody here need to kill a snake? 